0: Greetings again, everyone. What do you suppose is one of the very rarest things in our society, or even here on this earth? I'm continually reading about ornithology, or ichthyology, or biology, or watching some of the documentaries that come along on television about strange and exotic places in Central and South America. When I was doing a little bit of research for an article in Watch Magazine some time ago about hummingbirds, I was astounded at what I learned that I didn't know previously about the dozens of varieties there are, and about the strange little creatures, especially the concentration of them in Brazil, the island of Cuba. And in South America, where there are dozens and dozens of varieties that we've never heard of or seen except in perhaps an exotic wildlife book in the United States, people are continually talking about a brand new discovery of some insect or little fish or creature in some part of the earth that they have never even known of before. What I'm leading up to is the rarest thing that exists anywhere in the universe that we can know about, whatever, whatsoever and that is a man who will obey God without question, without argument, without reservation. No matter what Almighty God tells him, his only answer is yes, Lord. That, believe it or not, for all of the very rarest creatures, rarest things that you can imagine is the rarest thing on the face of this earth today. This statement I'm about to make is absolutely true it would probably take four or five sermons a lot of history and perhaps a book on the subject of the United States and its identity and biblical prophecy and down to history to demonstrate it to you but you are all sitting here in this room today Tyler Texas is a free city in the county of Smith the state of Texas the state of Texas is one of fifty of the southern contiguous forty-eight of the United States of America, which is a free country having been founded in, in 1776 by our founding fathers with the Declaration of Independence from Britain, the British Commonwealth, of, uh, Commonwealth nations in the former British Empire, and indeed all of civilization as we know it today, is the result directly of the obedience to God of one man. That's how rare obedience to God, without question, truly is. In the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, Paul asks, What shall we say then, verse 1, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Now, you're all familiar with Abraham. You may have forgotten the story about Abram, which was his name before the name was changed, because Abraham means a father of many nations where Abram, I'm not really certain what the meaning of that original name was, but Abraham means a father of many nations. We find his story beginning in the twelfth chapter of the book of Genesis. I'm going to go back a little bit before that, because, believe it or not, the Bible could be characterized by a new title. It could be called the story of one man's family. The Bible could be one man's family. In a very short few chapters, we are taken from the creation itself, perhaps four and one-half billion years ago, by just little flashbacks and other portions of the Bible to the first chapter of the book of Genesis, called the creation hymn, in which God reconfigures the face of the earth and puts man and woman upon it. Then in just a few chapters, we cover one-sixth of all of world history until now, up to the time of the flood of Noah, up to the sixth and seventh chapters. By the twelfth chapter we see Abram, and by the seventeenth a great reconfirmation of the promise God gave to him, which we will see in a few moments, and why it was that Abraham is called the father of the faithful. Why does it say in the New Testament, even to blacks, orientals, people of all minority races and all colors, all kingdoms of mankind, if ye be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed? and heirs according to the promise. Is there any name in patriarchal history any more prominent? Jesus, time and again, mentioned Abraham, time and again in his sermons as he indicted the Pharisees. He said, You, though they sat in Moses' seat, and though they were the leaders in the temple, and though they set the pace for society, and they were the people who had the power of life and death over the Jewish minority. And even though under a puppet government under the heel of roman domination they still could carry out the death sentence by stoning if someone broke their law the way they interpreted it and in spite of all of that power he said you will see abraham isaac his son and then jacob his son abraham's grandson in the kingdom of god and you yourselves the most spiritual righteous leaders the world was aware of cast out why Now, did they get saved by a different route back then? They got saved under Moses, but we get saved under Christ. Is that the way it worked out? Or was the criterion for salvation always the same? And is it true that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the same yesterday, today, and forever? That God is the same. He said, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed? Let's take a look at what Paul says in Romans 4. What shall we say then that our father Abraham has found as pertaining to the flesh? That is, having to do with the material promises that were given to Abraham. For if Abraham were justified by works, by something he did physically, he has whereof to glory. He can boast and brag to his neighbors, but not before God. What says the Scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But belief without obedience is utterly useless because the Bible tells us very clearly in the book of James even the demons believe and tremble. Belief is coupled with obedience, with actions. Now to him it works as a reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. Well, of course, you put in a good hard day's work for a certain amount of money and the person who promised you that money now owes you the money. You have earned it. It is no longer a gift, it is already as good as yours. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. What is sin? Well, we know that sin is the wages of, the the wages of sin, I'm sorry, is death, but we know sin is the breaking of God's Ten Commandments, any of the nuances of God's Ten Commandments as they are magnified by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just speculate with you for a moment, and let's pick out a couple of different examples about what sin might accomplish, and we could ask a question about punishments for sin. What is the punishment for sin? It is death for all eternity. But it is also death by a certain mode. It's a particular kind of death, believe it or not. The wages of sin is not death by freezing to death. They say that that's one of the most pleasant ways to go. I don't want to experience that, but they say at first you're just bitter, cold, and you shiver, and then after a while you get very, very numb And people who have been brought back from the very brink of death and perhaps have lost some members because of frostbite have described it as being the very pleasant feeling of drifting off to sleep. Finally become so numb, your body temperature is so low, you're simply unaware of the fact you're going to die, and you just say, let me just sleep, and you just go to sleep. My grandmother probably died in one of the most pleasant ways that any human being could. She was 96, and she was rocking in her favorite chair. She had her Bible on her lap and her reading glasses there, and she just told Dwight she was a little tired and thought she would take a nap and placed her glasses on her big black Bible and just put her head down and went to sleep, just leaned back in the chair, and never woke up. She died. My father apparently died in his sleep at age 93 and a half. Now let's flash back to the days of the Spanish Inquisition. Are you willing to speculate with me that out of all of the people in the Spanish Inquisition who tortured tens of thousands, apparently there were literally millions of people who died during that period of time in Central Europe, in Spain, Portugal, in Switzerland, in uh, eastern France, in the highlands of uh, northern Italy, people who were allegedly heretics, who believed in things like Pash on the 14th of Nyson, who believed in doing things like we're doing right here today where the civil authority, if they had the power to come here today and break down the glass doors and come through with cudgels and so on, herd you all down here to the local Bastille, could do as they did in those days for doing what we're doing here today, observing God's Sabbath. But that was against the law. So by the tens of thousands they tortured these people to death. There are some great paintings, you know, art and literature and music basically we owe to the so-called church, the corrupt church, but nevertheless the church. And if you visited some of the major museums in Europe, like El Escorial, one of the the palaces where the kings of Spain used to dwell outside of uh, Madrid, about thirty miles, you will see paintings as large as half of this wall over here. And some of them are incredible scenes, like the coronation of Napoleon, or different popes being crowned, or great battle scenes. or perhaps even mythological scenes of uh, creatures from heaven and so on coming down and consorting with men. But there are some gross and some grotesque and some bizarre paintings I've seen as well. At least two or three of them are in the Louvre, the British Museum, and El Escorial. They show human beings being tortured by Catholic priests. They show huge strips of human skin being slowly peeled off of human bodies with priests in their garb standing there looking on. Literally. Now, if you were to read, you know, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a a horrible book, I did not say that you ought to read it. It's worse than perhaps reading about Hitler's ovens and such similar books like Auschwitz and Dachau and so on. It's merely a book of torture, detailing the terrible things that happen to many people. Here, let's say, is a priest, and he has tortured to death who knows how many people. What are the wages of sin for him? What if he dies, as I'm sure we're willing to agree and to speculate, exactly as my grandmother did? What if he survives the experience and he becomes the head of some monastery and at age 89 in reasonably, uh, you know, good health, looking back over his life, being very zealous for the church, proud of his accomplishment of putting about 137 rotten heretics to death, most of whom, as he was breaking their bones or clasping the lid down on the iron coffin, were saying they recanted and uh, they're now willing to give up and go back to the most holy Roman Catholic Church and kiss the foot of the Pope. But this obscene, filthy torturer who may have had really perverse sadomasochistic twists in his innermost mind dies at age 87 of old age when does he suffer the penalty for sin has he already suffered it he's dead right the wage of sin is dead right has he suffered has God exacted retribution what do you think what is your opinion what's going on in your mind I'm not asking you to speak out loud but what is your opinion of someone like that What about Adolf Eichmann? They took his life. Was that sufficient? He took hundreds of thousands of lives. Well, we'll come to that a little later on, but I want you to think about that. The wages of sin is death. Question. Adam and Eve were created human, air-breathing, water-drinking, food-ingesting metabolic organisms in the Garden of Eden, and they were dependent upon the air, food, and water for their sustenance and their survival. Let's say, just by theory, that they neglected to reach out and take of the tree of life, and they also did not believe the devil, and they neglected to reach out and take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't do either one. Then they'd still be walking around nude in the garden, and we wouldn't be here, right? They would have lived for 6,000 years, still wandering around, right? Is Is that what would happen? No. No, it's given to all men to die once. The Bible plainly says it's given to all men to die once. So eventually, at the end of their physical lifespan, because of the aging process, the rays of the sun, the interaction of our own molecular structure and our cells, they would have begun to look a little weather-beaten, and their skin would have crinkled and gotten old and they would have shrunken down a little bit, and they would have been a little more stooped and ungainly than they were at age 19 or 20, and they would have aged until finally their sight would have gone, their hearing would have just about gone, they would have been very elderly, and they would have died. Because the Bible very clearly says it's given to all men to die once. And then what does it say? It says, after this, the judgment. After this comes the judgment. Abraham was a righteous man, but Abraham sinned. Now, Almighty God is able to forgive sin. There is a little technical difficulty in what I'm going to propose, and I do not know the answer perfectly. Because I do know that in some way, in retrospect, Almighty God applies the sacrifice of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to patriarchs who, though they had the concept of the need for a Savior, and even prophesied as such, as we will see, and talked about the Lord coming with 10,000 of his saints, and even conceived the concept of, of the idea of a resurrection, there may be a great deal they knew of which we are unaware because Almighty God walked and talked with them. It said he walked and talked with Enoch. And Enoch was, as we will see, the seventh, not genealogically, but uh, numerologically, from Adam. And we'll unravel that in just a few moments. Because there were patriarchs who were doing the work of God back then. Let's notice, just going on a little bit with regard to Paul's argument to the Jewish people and the Gentiles in Rome about circumcision and uncircumcision. That Abraham, verse 11, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which could include Greeks and Romans and so on, which he had being yet uncircumcised, to showing that he was able to obey God, that he was able to be called, chosen, faithful, and obedient, though he was not circumcised. And the Romans were being told the lie by the Jewish advocates of circumcision and making everybody into a proselyte Jew that it's absolutely essential for you to be circumcised. You cannot have favor with God and be looked upon favorably unless you have that mark in your flesh that you're one of God's people. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world, Abraham was promised to inherit the earth. Was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, by the law, because of the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, that is, the carnal works of the law that were enacted by the Jewish people, the Pharisees and the rest of them, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law works wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. We've gone over that. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only that which is of the law, that is, to those, meaning the Jews of that day and age, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham, regardless as to race, who is the father of us all, black, yellow, white, of any color or race, as it is written... Quoting from Genesis 17, 5, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And that's a partial quotation from a statement that was reiterated at least four times and even stated in the parting uh, of of uh, Rebecca by her brothers and sisters and her father and mother when Isaac was to take a wife not from the seed of the Canaanites in the land where Abraham dwelt but from among their own kin. And so, of course, Isaac married his third cousin, Rebekah. That statement was, You shall become a father of many nations and kings shall come out of thee. Over and over again God said, As the dust of the earth so shall thy seed be. He said, look up and tell the stars, meaning count the stars, so shall thy seed be. How many stars are there? It's metaphor. We know now that perhaps because of powerful microscopes and space probes and so on, there may be 200 billion billion, not just hundreds of millions, but of course even the hundreds of millions that are visible with the human eye. On a very clear night, around the entirety of the Milky Way that envelops the entirety of the earth, you have to go clear around the earth from every vantage point to see them all. That analogy made it very clear that Abraham was to be the father of multiple national seed, that whole lineages of kings, many, many nations with kings in dynasties down through those various nations were to come of Abraham. And again and again it was repeated that he was to become the progenitor of one great nation. We see that, of course, in Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, and Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, with his twelve sons, thirteen in all, if you count the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, or of Joseph. That promise, again, was made that he would be the progenitor of thousands of millions, It said, clearly. National seed. Also, when Rebekah, was being taken back to marry Isaac. You recall the very moving scene. It's kind of an interesting little storybook thing that Sunday school teachers, I'm sure, like to teach little children, but they miss the point. They missed the point about one's roots, how important it is to marry among one's own kin and one's own kind, if at all possible, at least very distant kin, but certainly kind or race and that Almighty God divided the races. There's nothing to do with a statement of racism in the tables of nations in Genesis 10 or the fifth chapter of Genesis, nor the separating of the races at the Tower of Babel. The point is that Almighty God pre-programmed in Mother Eve all of the various racial strains of which humankind is capable. And the three great racial strains found from the progenitors of Shem, Ham, and Japheth have basically overspread the earth exactly as God said they would. In latter years, they've been more and more intermingling, which is not good, either sociologically or spiritually speaking. But I won't get into all that because it is a kind of a can of worms for some people and sensitivities get involved. Many people get very upset. That's why I was very moved by the book and the movie many years ago where a black American decided he wanted to go back and find his roots. We all remember the many, many nights of watching the miniseries by Alex Haley, when he finally went to the village where uh, Kunta Kinte was and said, you Africans, and here were his roots, and he was just overcome with discovering where he came from, and it was so important to him. So those roots were very important to Almighty God, and we see genealogical tables. We see Abraham's genealogy, and later on we see David's genealogy, and then the genealogy of Christ that goes back through all of them, clear back to Adam. Two times in the Gospels we see genealogies, that take us all the way back to Adam and bring us forward to the time of Jesus Christ. To God, it was very, very important that a person marry among his own race. So Abraham caused the servant to come and do a very strange thing, I won't go into that, but to swear in a unique manner that had to do with his progeny, that he would not, and it also shows the, uh, the age of Isaac when that was going on, and the age of accountability and so on. Apparently Isaac had little to do with it, And the major-domo, or the servant, was the one who was over everything that Abraham had. So Abraham called him in and said, You will not allow my son Isaac to marry among these Canaanites in the land, but you're going to swear unto me that you will go back to the land of my forefathers, and there you will find one of our own stock, and that God will provide. And if God does not, then you're released from your bound, except you've got to promise me that Isaac Uh, will not go back there. You can't let Isaac go back there. It's very, very clearly stated in the 24th chapter of the book of Genesis that Isaac could not go back. Abraham didn't want to take the risk that he would leave the land of whom he was to become the heir. And so we know the story of Rebekah at the well. And Isaac shows up. He's tired. I'm, I'm sorry, not Isaac, but the servant of Abraham with his camels, and Rebecca comes out with a vase, and she lets down the water, gives him to the drink, then waters all the camels. He gives her some very valuable jewelry, obviously a token of betrothal, talks about her family, they have a dinner together, they talk together. The strange salutation when she leaves, and she makes up her own mind, yes, I will go and become a wife to Isaac. They said, Be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gates of them. That hate them. That was stated to Rebecca as she left to go to a far country to marry Isaac, sight unseen. This is merely going back to the time when Abraham was clear up in his 90s, when Sarah laughed when God said, Yes, you are going to give birth to a child. And he, verse 19, being not weak in faith, considered not his own body now dead. He was, so far as he knew, impotent. There was no way at age 90 that he thought he was going to become a father. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And here is a, a statement in the Bible, probably one of the clearest and the best statements of what it means to believe, of what it means to have faith, what it means to be a Christian. Being fully persuaded that What he had promised, he was able also to perform. I'll tell you, if everybody knew that God is, that God exists, that Almighty God is the ruler, that he's in charge, that he controls the universe. He's not just a first cause or a force or uh, the, the man upstairs, all these cute little statements people use to talk about God in some kind of an arrangement they think they have with him. But if they understood that God is the ruler and in complete control and sitting at the controls of the universe, and they were fully persuaded that whatever God has promised he is able to perform, then they will really believe God and great miracles are possible. Therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's believing God Almighty, the Father in heaven, as well as believing in Jesus Christ. So it talks about Abraham as being the father of the faithful, and we know what it says in Galatians 3.19, If ye be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now let's go back and rehearse very quickly how all of that came about. We know this is the first chapter of Genesis, verse 26, 7, and 8, where God created male and female in his own image, and said, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And man became a living nephesh, as it says in Genesis 2 and verse 7. In the third chapter is the scene in the garden. And in the fourth we read, Adam knew Eve his wife. The Bible writers could not bring themselves to translate that in a way that we could understand it. Of course, he knew her. But it's talking obviously about the fact that they, as husband and wife, came together in love and conception occurred. She conceived, and look at the language because it's interesting. And bare Cain, and said, It's a boy. Uh, It's interesting the language here in connection with this and in the fifth chapter. I'll skip over to that and we'll come back in a moment. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. They both, Adam, meaning red clay, red mud. Or, as we see in the first and second chapters, Ish and Isha in the Hebrew, man and woman. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years, and, notice the language, begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. doesn't say a word about likeness or image when Eve says of their firstborn, It's a boy. Here's Cain. His name is Cain. It's a boy. There is emphasis in the fifth chapter in his own image, after his own likeness. Now, we all look, as I have, at our grandchild and see the various family aspects of the child. Oh, he looks like this or that, or he looks like he or she or whatever. All people do that. He's the spitting image of this and that and the other thing. So everybody looks at maternal and paternal grandparents and father and mother, and sees these characteristics. And when a child looks exactly like the family, everyone counts that as a very great blessing. That's terrific. That's to be expected. That's logical. That's natural. In this case, however, of the birth of Cain, chapter 4 and verse 1, she merely says, I've gotten a man child. I've gotten a man from the eternal. She again buries brother Abel, says nothing about the way Abel looked. I speculate that there was a difference between the two boys in coloration. The reason being that very, very early on in the development of the human family, various racial stocks began to become obvious, and we see that very, very quickly by the fifth chapter, and especially by the sixth, as we will read in a moment. And the emphasis on that is inescapable, especially with regard to what God said about Noah, who was righteous in his generations. All right, we know the story of the keeper of the sheep and the tiller of the ground, Cain, of course, being the vegetable grower, and Abel was a herdsman. Abel understood something because, you know, we don't know uh, how much God talked to these people and how much they knew, but there was an interesting fact in animal sacrifice that was offered even prior, long prior to the time Levi was ever thought of or dreamed of, and the jealousy between the two, and then, of course, the first murder. Now, a little later on, it says in verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Eternal and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. People have asked for years, where did Cain get his wife? Well, obviously, Adam and Eve had many, many children. By this time, they may have had 17 or 20 or 30. Who knows? But they've had children, boys and girls, and they've had a flock of them. And it's obvious that Cain married his own sister. We once had an interesting little exercise in my second year bible class years ago and i had the kids with the proverbial question would you rather have a penny doubled every day for 30 days or a million bucks you can have a million dollars right now or give you a penny we'll double it every day for 30 days a lot of people take the million but of course you know that it would be far more than that i think it's somewhat over two million million. It's been a long time since i figured it if a penny doubled every day for 30 days eventually becomes i think it's somewhat more than two million dollars maybe it's more than three i've forgotten it's been so many years we did that my point was, we're going to establish an average age of 25 for a human couple to marry. And what we're going to do is to say that Adam and Eve had 10 children, boys and girls. And then we just went through it, and we looked at the number of years involved between then and the flood, and we came up with four and a half billion plus for the human family by the time of the flood. And it's just like, there's the funniest little story, Pigs is Pigs, a book that Lou Werner had when we visited recently up in Canada about a guy that received a shipment back in the thirties or so of guinea pigs. And it was some little defugalty about whether they were pigs or whether they were rabbits. And the statement that they were pigs and so on meant that it was fifty cents, but if there was something else about twenty-five cents that he had to charge a person for the shipping cost. And while we were going around and around on the red tape and so on, just a little bitty book and one of the really cute, funny things you've read. All of a sudden, there were eight of them, and then there were about 64 of them, then there were 179, and first thing you knew, there were about five or 6,000 of them. And finally, by the time the whole thing was being settled, he was scooping guinea pigs into boxes with a scoop shovel and literally sending them by the box load back to where they came from because they were just exploding. I once in high school biology heard it uh, said that a pair of rats or mice could, I forget how many, just in a rather short period of time, like three to five years or something like that, could have just hundreds of millions of progeny because they breed so quickly and can multiply so rapidly. Be that as it may, let's understand that there were boys and girls, and because we deal with Cain and Abel, they were by no means the only two children they had, any more than we can assume this one girl was the only girl they had who married Cain. Now it deals with Cain's progeny and talks about some of the people Who were born to him, Enoch, and then Enoch's children. Verse eighteen, Irad, who begat Mahujael, Mahujael begat Methusael, Methusael, Lamech, and on and on. And we see their wives and so on. As each family began to develop very very rapidly. Chapter five, verse three. Adam lived 130 years. Now, how old were they when they first began to expect a child? That probably would happen fairly quickly. I'm not sure, and I want to make a joke out of this, but I mean, after all, they were in the garden of Eden, the world's biggest bedroom. It was also the most private place on the face of the earth because there was not another human being in 10,000 miles in any direction. So probably we can assume that Adam didn't necessarily wait a year and a half or two or even ten years to consummate the marriage. Is that safe? I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm trying to say that probably within the first two to three years they had a child. And probably within another year and a half or two or three, they had another one. And probably so it went. Now we read that he lived a hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness. It's interesting. Is that the first time it happened? Possibly. It's not a doctrine. This isn't information that you have to accept to be saved. I'm just saying that it's interesting that the biblical emphasis is where it is. And we can see a proof with regard to this business of father to firstborn son and whether that is always the genealogical reckoning of the Bible in just a moment. All the days of Adam after he'd begotten Seth for 800 years and he begat sons and daughters during all of that time. They were quite virile. He could have literally had then hundreds of sons and daughters in that long lifespan. And each of them at age 17, 16, 14, 25 we said in our class were having sons and daughters. And I'm telling you it was each of them in couples having sons and daughters, and if you restrict them to only six or eight kids apiece, you're dealing with astronomical numbers. You really are. We can read all the genealogical tables, and I won't do that except to count them right quickly, but first, before we do that, let's go back to the book of Jude and take a look at something that is quite interesting. The gospel has been preached from the time of the Garden of Eden when Almighty God preached it to Adam and Eve. In the book of Jude, we see a little portion of a long-forgotten book this portion of it, given the weight and the authenticity of Scripture. It says in verse 14 of the book of Jude, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, who? Well, these evil, seditious teachers who were creeping their way into the ranks of the early New Testament church and who took it over from within. Now, they may have been streetwise, they may have been thugs, they may have been whatever... They were absolutely illegitimate successors to the apostles, but they were the successors because they had the political skills and the know-how to muscle their way in to take over. Simon Magus and his ilk succeeded so that the early New Testament church, for all practical purposes, disappeared as an organized entity very quickly after the death of John, the end of the first century. And so these are being dealt with Certain men crept in unawares, verse 4, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into license and permission to do evil. Denying the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he likens them to these filthy dreamers who defile the flesh, verse 8, despise dominion, except their own, and speak evil of dignities. Woe unto them, verse 11, they have gone in the way of Cain and ran, ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the saying of Corrie. These are the spots, the blemishes in your charitable feast when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, etc. won't read all of that. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, verse 14, prophesied of these, saying, Here is a man way back before the flood, and he said this, and it's been preserved even in New Testament history, quote, "...behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints." This is not a prophecy of the first coming of Jesus Christ but a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it dates long before the flood of Noah. So those men knew. They had a great deal of information. To execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, a thrice-repeated declamation of sin... And of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouths speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration in order to gain advantage, as it should read. Was Enoch the seventh from Adam? The answer is no, he was not. Let's take a look right quickly. It's perhaps not too terribly important, except to illustrate one point that we often miss in passing. It says that all the days of Adam were 930 years and he died. Verse 6, Seth lived in 105 years and begat Enos. Question. Was Enos Seth's firstborn? No way. No way. There is no way that he was 105 years of age before he had their first child. He may have had any number of boys. It's certain that he had a lot of daughters. Just by looking at the family of Adam and what has happened and what we've already proved before, with regard to Cain and Abel, who are not mentioned in this genealogical table. But we will see one of them is omitted, and we must add him a little later on. Seth lived after he begat Enos eight hundred and seven years and begat sons and daughters during all of that time. And all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. And Enos lived ninety years and begat Cainan. Why ninety? Why not hundred and thirty? Why are they different ages before this individual is singled out who is mentioned as an heir through whom we see a genealogical table. Enos lived after he begat Cainan, eight hundred and fifteen. Begat sons and daughters all that time. Enos lived nine hundred and five years, and he died. Cainan lived seventy years. Different. Begat Mahalalel, and Cainan lived after he begat Mahalalel, eight hundred and forty years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Cainan were nine hundred and ten years, and he died. Now, Mahaleliel lived 60 and 5 years before Jared was born. And Jared lived another 830, begetting children all that time. Mahaleliel lived 895 years and died. And Jared lived 160 and 2 years before Enoch was born. Did you count them? You've only got six from Adam. One is missing. Who was it? has to be Abel. It is the only one because Abel is called righteous, and is listed in the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter. What is there important about Jude stating that Enoch was the seventh from Adam? Quote, or question rather, was he the seventh firstborn son? Absolutely not. No way, because you've got to count Cain, right? So he was not the seventh in firstborn son. The seventh what? Let's take a look a little later on toward the end of this chapter. When Noah was begotten, we read in verse 27, all the days of Methuselah were 969 and he died, and Lamech, who was Methuselah's son, lived 182 years and begat a son. Now remember, all these people were contemporaries. Remember that Methuselah was a contemporary of Adam. Remember that we're only dealing basically with 1,000 years, and these men's lifespans are consuming nearly the entirety of that 1,000 years up to the time of the flood of Noah. Only a handful of them, perhaps Adam and a few others, died before the flood. But most of these men were still alive, as was Methuselah, who was probably drowned by the flood or died in some of the uh, anxiety uh, just before it, as a very, very elderly man. But remember, they were contemporaries. They knew each other, that information could be passed on not just from ancient records, but by word of mouth, by experience over decades of time, literally hundreds of years of time. When he begat Noah, a strange thing was stated. Verse 29. He called his name Noah, and what does that mean? Noah means peace. It means quietude, is the meaning of the name Noah. This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Eternal hath cursed. Noah is a type of Christ. He is a type of of the Savior of mankind. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and 5 years and begat sons and daughters. Now Noah was 500, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Did Noah have children before that time? I believe it was an error when the church taught, my father taught many, many years ago, that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were all white men. I believe it is an absolute error. I do not believe that Almighty God named the racial stocks, the basic three colors of mankind, after the wives and congratulated Noah for insisting that his sons did not marry a a black or a yellow or a different colored stock than the so-called white Caucasian stock we assume Noah to have been. I believe that there were thousands of women who were of Caucasian appearance We call it white. Well, your shirt is white, but your face is kind of ruddy or pink or sallow or whatever. Uh, But nevertheless, who had children representing every spectrum of the human family. So that two couples who might have appeared what we would say Caucasian might have had a black son and a yellowish son and so on during that time. It happened to Noah's family. Why shouldn't it have happened to others? Because all of these potentialities were in the... Reproductive cycle of Mother Eve when Almighty God created her in the first place. Scientists apparently have discovered that every ovum that a human female will ever ovulate during her entire active life is in her body at birth. I don't know if that's true or not. I've read it, I've heard it, and they state it's true. How they discovered it, I don't know, because I thought it was generated in some way, in the same way that the male does, but apparently not. Apparently it is there in some minute, microscopic fashion, and gradually develops during a period of time. But be that as it may, the potentiality for it certainly is, and the pattern that is in a human female for the capacity to reproduce after her own kind is there at the time of birth. Now, my purpose is not to get into a story on race. My purpose is to show how Almighty God through these lives, through interference and intervention in lives, time and time again, is very carefully seen to it that the promises he made to faithful, righteous Abraham and the work that was carried on by righteous patriarchs, each of whom had a distinct calling from God from the time of Abel to Seth, to Enos, and right on down to Mahalaleel, Methuselah, and down to Jared, and Lamech, and Noah, was actually the calling which rested upon the shoulders of certain individuals irrespective of being the firstborn, who were righteous patriarchs, who uniquely in their time obeyed God, and none of the others did. God has never lacked a witness on the face of the earth, there was never a period of time from the time of Adam clear on down to the flood and thereafter where God did not have a witness. Notice chapter 6, very strange language used. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, not angels, by the way, no matter what anybody says, Jesus makes it very clear when the Pharisees brought the very difficult question about the people who had married and died, married and died, married and died, the seven brothers, and so on, and uh Whose wife is she going to be in the, in the resurrection? Where Jesus said, It will be in the resurrection as the angels, for they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. Therefore the angels, it shows, even though spoken of in masculine terms, appearing as men are neuter when it comes to being able to reproduce. Angels cannot cohabit with women. I don't care what mythology says, I don't care what some biblical texts or other books might tell you, The Bible itself, and its own internal evidence, says this was not angels cohabiting with women. The story people write, the story a lot of people believe is, and if you look at the language here, you can see it's ridiculous. They allegedly tell you that angels came down, cohabited with women, gave birth to a whole race of monsters, and that's why the flood came upon man. That's what scholars have believed for for centuries, that these grotesque monsters had to be exterminated because they were mixtures between angels and women. That's the dumbest thing you've ever heard of. Look at the language itself. Why are they called sons of God first? What do you think Lamech means? You can look it up. What do you think Enoch means? Gift of God, one who walks with God. The E is the name of God. Uh, In each one of these cases, you will see, all right, Enos, that has the name of God in it. Jared, the Jah, is the name of God. Yah-red. Uh, Methuselah, Methus is God, the name of God. Every one of these people had the name of God. God's mercy, God's grace, God's gift. God is good, God is righteous, God gives peace, whatever, was a part of their name. As a matter of fact, it says very clearly, Then did men begin, begin to call themselves by the name of God, or, and it's misunderstood by some people, but there was a statement made to that effect in the very early chapters of the book of Genesis. These sons of God may have been of the line of Cain. Many biblical commentators believe that. Saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Interesting language. Talks about the fact that they saw certain women who were fair. And took them wives of all which they chose. Now the immediate context that follows is, The Eternal said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. Why? Why? Is that some giant quantum leap? Does the Bible give you one nonsensical statement to be followed by an equally nonsensical statement? Or is there obvious emphasis here that these sons of God, meaning human beings, were looking upon women who were fair and were choosing wives according to what they wanted to do rather than according to God's teaching, God's laws, and the teaching of their parents? What is the emphasis Immediately God said, My spirit will not always argue, strive uh, with man, for he is also flesh. Yet his days, humankind was going to be given another period of time of 120 years. Now, there were giants, the Hebrew word is Nephilim, which is also used as some of those of the Anak or the Anakim who were in the land of Palestine when the spies went in and saw them. So it is nothing that was uniquely of this period of time, but even later on the same Hebrew word is used. It merely means giants. There were great, gigantic men in the earth in those days. And also after that, alright, after the giants, right, after the fact that there were giants in the earth in those days, when the sons of God, meaning human beings, came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. Renown means renamed or men of fame because of various exploits and deeds. In research that I did many, many years ago, it is obvious not only in the caves of the Cro-Magnon man, Neanderthal man, and some of the other bones that have been unearthed in the caves in central Europe, especially in France and the Alps and elsewhere, and in Germany, that cannibalism was very much extant in the pre-flood period during the time prior to Noah. I actually drew some of the pictures of some of the skulls that have been on earth, of which there are tens of thousands, by the way. There are thousands of examples filed away, called Neanderthal, with a very, very thick, huge leg bones, a femur, and so on, that showed that these men were of gigantic stature, that they had very large brawny legs and arms, that they were perhaps up to seven, seven and a half, eight feet tall. Saul was perhaps ten feet tall, a lot of people don't realize that. He was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel, and Goliath was probably closer to fifteen. Now, it's getting commonplace today in our modern society, especially among the black races in the United States and even the whites, that everybody is growing taller and taller and taller and bigger and bigger, it seems. We're just in that kind of a cycle. When I was a boy, when Eugene, uh, the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon, I've got to hurry, won the national basketball championship, one of the taller centers in the United States was Slim Wintermute, who was six foot eight. Well, Magic Johnson's a guard, and he's six foot eight. And a lot of them now are seven, seven, one, seven, two, and I think there's even one, uh, seven, four, playing basketball today. So some of them can dunk the ball just standing flat-footed. But Saul would have had no trouble. He'd have had to drop the thing, you know, like looking, bending over and drop it down through the hoop, I imagine. But these gigantic people were doing things that caused God to say that he repented. It made him sick, in a sense, to his heart that he'd made man, verse 6. It repented the eternal that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the eternal. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, and I believe Noah and his wife were the same racial stock. And I think the ones that went before him were similar racial stock. And I think when Mrs. Noah, whose name we do not know, gave birth to these children, that Shem looked a little bit oriental or yellowish in color... And that Ham looked very dark or black in color, and that Japheth, I'm sorry, the other way around, Shem looked Caucasian or perhaps olive skin, and Ham was black and Japheth was yellow or looked like the progenitor, probably had cold black hair, very round hair, instead of the flat, which is kinky or curly. And he is the progenitor of all of those nations of people. It's interesting to me that Java and Japan and so on are over in that part of the earth. But they all look alike to us. You can't tell a Korean or a Chinese or a Japanese apart. They walk in and sit down. That irks them no end because they think all Americans look alike. Uh, But to us, they all look alike. But these basic racial stocks are the peoples of whom the earth has been populated. Populated. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And we can speculate about what all of that was. But then comes the Noahian deluge, and it says in verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Now, Abraham was called, chapter 12, and was told to get thee out of your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, to a land that I am going to show you. A little later on, God said that he was to become... In the seventeenth chapter, a father of many nations, verse 5, And I will establish my covenant with you, and after you, with their seed, verse 7, of your generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you, or to your seed, multiple, plural, in their generations. In the twenty-second chapter, we read of the absolute reconfirmation, making it unconditional, When Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, I don't have time to go through that, but Abraham knew that God had said, your seed are going to become hundreds of millions, they're going to be lines of kings. He had a little bit of doubt, perhaps. Sarah laughed, and uh, God had to chide them for it. When Isaac was born, when they were nearly 100 years of age, but now Abraham absolutely knew no matter what God told him to do, he was going to do it. You can read that 22nd chapter a little later on. When God saw that Abraham did not argue, just quietly went about his business and did exactly what God said, he said to him, Now I know that he can make it unconditional. We'll read it right quickly. Verse 16 God said to him, By myself have I sworn, saith the Eternal, for because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now look at the type of Almighty God. Abraham here is a type of God the Father, and Isaac is a type of Christ. It shows you what God the Father himself knew he was going to have to go through at the time of sacrificing his own beloved son for all of the sins of mankind. Abraham was willing because Abraham learned the lesson that love lets go. Love does not smother, does not possess, love is not grasping to keep or to hold, but love is also willing to let go. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven. And as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, repeated, as I said to Rebecca a little later on, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, dual, a dual promise, because you have obeyed my voice. Now what I said when we began, many people would take very great umbrage at what I'm about to say. I mentioned briefly that we wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for Abraham. Most people will write Indian history, the former Anglo-Egyptian Sudan or Sudanese history, or Egyptian history, or the history of British or Dutch Guiana, or the history, for example, of all Southeast Asia, or indeed the opening of Japan to the West, and the current history today is a result of that, when Dewey sailed into Tokyo Bay, or Manila Bay, earlier than that, but I mean when uh, Western ships first sailed into Tokyo and opened up a feudal Japanese society to the West. You can look around the world in a map of about 1936 or so. They always colored the British Empire bright red. They don't do that anymore because of communism. And then protectorates and Commonwealth nations were colored a kind of a pink. And you look at the British Isles, which have sat right off the Kattegat and Skagerrak, and of course the narrow little aperture between the Jutland Peninsula of Denmark blocking the Baltic, from the Russian ports and so on, out into the North Sea. So the British have sat offshore, separated from Europe, by only 20 scant miles, with the raging seas and a very bad weather of the British Channel, which has absolutely influenced history down through literally hundreds and hundreds of years. Now they have a song, There Shall Always Be an England. Unfortunately, that song is not quite true. But so far in our history, from the time of the Angales and the Picts and the Normans and the Saxons, and finally the people who were called the British, which merely means covenant man, or the British people, no matter how they might write it from a racist point of view of the exploitation of India by the British East India Company, and alleging that a lot of fat cats in Britain got very, very wealthy on the sweat of coolie labor in other parts of the world, be that as it may, notwithstanding the political the racial, or the other arguments. My statement is this, that the world would not be the same if there had never been an England. That we, if the Magna Carta, for example, had not been put upon King John by the British subjects under him, would not be a free nation today. Now, God had a hand in every bit of this. God has allowed it. God has guided it. But believe it or not, India would not be the nation it is, so many other nations would not be if it had not been for the Western Europeans, the Northwestern Europeans in particular, and especially the British, and of course we in the United States would simply not be here. It all had to do with Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we can read that through the 24th chapter on down to the final chapters in the book of Genesis where we see the prophecies of the progeny of Abraham in Genesis 49. And there's one in particular I want to read. It talks about Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Naphtali, Asher. But finally we come to Joseph, verse 22. And listen to the language of the prophecy concerning Joseph, who of course was the favored son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow bowed in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Interesting language, which you'll see covered in the book that I'm now working on every day, trying to get it out at long last about the United States in prophecy. Even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, And by the Almighty he shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. National greatness. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him that was chief among, prince among, as it should read, his brethren. Now that prophecy has stuck On Joseph, Joseph was the father of who? Ephraim and Manasseh. Do you remember how Almighty God caused aged Israel, as he was about to die, to cross his hands and to place his name upon his two grandsons? Let's read it in the forty-eighth chapter, right quickly. The two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, verse five. Aged Israel is saying, as he lays dying, lies dying. Well, first of all, let's read what he said, passing this on to Joseph. In verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, Jacob is Israel, remember, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said, Behold, I will make you fruitful, and multiply thee, and I will make of thee a multitude of people, and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine." And thy issue, which you beget after them, shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. As for me, he rehearsed his life a little bit. When I came from Paden Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way, when yet there was but a little way to come to Ephrath, and I buried her there by the way of Ephrath, the same as Bethlehem. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons, and said, Who are these? His eyes were very, very dim. And Joseph said unto his father, These are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them, a father embracing his grandsons. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God has shown me also thy seed. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and crossed it, and laid it upon Ephraim's head, guiding his hands wittingly, as the Bible margin says, making his hands wise. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel, Hebrew messenger, could be translated, which redeemed me from all evil, blessed the lads, and let my name be named on them. Now who is Judah, the progenitor of the Jews? Simeon, scattered about, having no inheritance in the land. Levi, the Levitical priesthood, Cohen is the Hebrew word for Levi or for priest and they too were scattered throughout the other tribes and had no inheritance in the land. Those 3 made up what is called the house of Judah with a completely separate dynasty of kings covered in four whole books of the Bible, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Who is to wear the name of the house of Israel, not the Jews, not Judah? Not Simeon, not Levi, not Gad, Dan, Issachar, Naphtali, Zebulun, or any of the rest of them. But Ephraim and Manasseh. Let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Next time you're in a big city, look up in the telephone book the name of Abraham and of Isaac. Isaac became Sake or the Scythe, among some of the Nordics, and especially the Germanic people of Central Europe and finally became Saxons. And Saxons merely means Isaac's sons, the sons of Isaacs. That is the derivation of that word. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. But his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. The United States doesn't tell it this way, but they don't understand their history. But truly his younger brother, that's Ephraim, that's Great Britain, shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. England, England. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and many other nations and colonies all around the world that have been under the control of the British Empire. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he said, Ephraim, before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I am dying." But God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with, the sword, with my sword and my bow. Well, that is the end of that portion of it. I wish I had time for the remainder of my sermon, which would consume at least an hour and a half, as to why it is that the Bible could be characterized as the story of one man's family. We don't realize how rare a thing it is for one human being to obey God regardless the cost, without any equivocation, without any doubt, without any argument whatsoever, this great old man, Abraham, when he was nearly 100 years of age, got rid of every last vestige of doubt or argument and simply said, I am going to obey God no matter what the cost to me personally, because I'm convinced that no matter what he tells me, it's right And he's able fully to perform that which he has promised. Abraham believed God, but his belief was coupled with works. He went and did exactly what God told him to do. He left the land of Paran and he went into the land of Palestine. He walked up the hill with the sticks and with the son, prepared to sacrifice his own son as a type of God the Father, prepared to sacrifice Christ. As a result, he is going to be over you. I don't care who you are. He is going to be over King David. He is going to be over all of the apostles. He is going to have a great and an exalted position in the kingdom of God. He has been lying peacefully unaware of the passage of time from the day that he died of old age. A man who at least grew to see his son as very elderly, way up over a hundred years of age, and saw God reconfirm the promise to him and to say that from his son and his son's son, these promises would absolutely, because of Abraham's righteousness, be confirmed to them. Time and time again, God had to be reminded, not that God forgot, but in the case of Noah, I'm sorry, of Moses, if you recall, when God finally with Israel said, let me alone that I may destroy them and I will raise up another nation of you. Well, he was still, of course, Moses was of this progeny. It was still that family, that family strain, but God was going to start all over again like it was Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, rather, all over again. And Noah, I'm sorry, Moses, I keep wanting to say Noah, argued in a sense, he said, but what will the say, and they will say, their God was not able to save them, and it said God repented himself because of Moses' intercessory prayer and changed his mind. But time and again, God is reminded Israel, meaning the children of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, it is not for your sake, but the sake of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You know that Abraham Lincoln seemed to know that and made a statement during his tenure of office that we think that the might of our own hand has given us this great and glorious land, the bounty and the plenty of the United States of America, that Abraham Lincoln acknowledged it came from the hand of Almighty God. So we're in Tyler, Texas, in Smith County, in the state of Texas today, absolutely free men as a result of the obedience of Abraham. Just how rare is it for one man to obey God?